Every time I preach, most every time, I think of a little old man in West Virginia. And if I've told you the story before, I apologize. It does pass through my head most every time that I preach. I was preaching for the very first time at Landmark Baptist Church in Parkersburg. I had been on staff for, I think, two weeks. And Pastor Lamb went out of town. Either he was needing a vacation or I looked trustworthy. But I was there for two weeks and he said, hey, can you preach on Sunday? And I said, sure. And so uh, I was nervous. I was very nervous. And there was a man named George Ackerman. He was short. He had a uh, pointed ears. He kind of looked like Yoda. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I say Yoda? He, was, he wasn't green, but he did look like Yoda. And he came up to me before the service and he said, young man, he said, are you nervous? And I don't know why. I, I, probably my nature would have been to say, no, I'm fine. But, but I didn't. I just looked down. I, I, knelt, I didn't kneel down, but I got down there. I said, yes, I am nervous. He smiled real big and broad. He said, oh, that's good. He said, young man, you just preach Jesus and you won't be nervous. And uh, I've never forgotten that. And if I've told you that story before, I apologize. But this morning, I just want to preach about Jesus. We, we read, of course, John's account of his crucifixion. I want to read a passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter number 27. The Bible says this, verse number uh, 36, talking about the crucifixion of Christ. It says, and sitting down... They watched him there. They watched him there. Everything that we just read about, how he was lifted up and crucified, and we gave up the ghost, and all of that. The Bible says in Matthew that some sitting down watched him there. Let me ask you a question. What do you see when you watch him there? If you could somehow go back to that place, Golgotha, you could somehow go back to that place of the skull, it is called. And after 2,000 years, uh, though it's been weathered and uh, worn, you can still see, if you get an aerial picture of Golgotha, it still very much looks like a skull. You can see eye, socket, eye sockets and a nose, and, and you can see uh, why it's called the place of the skull, that place where there were three crosses and Jesus was on the middle cross. And if you just look at him there, what do you see? What emotion does it stir inside of you? As Brother Lawrence was reading John chapter 20, all those 20 verses that he read, uh, there is something inside of me that is stirred. And I think if you love the Lord Jesus, there's something inside of you that can help, but maybe even weep if you think about it long enough. But as you watch him there, what do you see? This morning as I preach, I'm going to preach to you a message that I've just entitled, Winning and Losing. Winning and losing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please bless the service and help me, Lord, to say everything that you would want me to say and nothing that you wouldn't want me to say. God, would you give clarity to the message and to give us an ear to listen as your word is preached. Lord, if there's anyone here that's lost, I pray today, as they watch you there, that they would trust you as Savior. If there's any Christian in the room that's not focused on what they ought to be focused on, help us, God, help us. as We watch you there uh, to be focused on you and your plan for our lives and to do it in these days in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Leave your Bibles open to John chapter 20. We'll look at several verses. I'm a competitive person. I, I love to win, and I hate to lose. How many of you are with me? Raise your hand. And I mean it. Like, I, I'm serious. I really, I hate to lose. Uh, on Tuesday, we, we were bowling and to, had a formal, and we were bowling, and I'm not a bowler. I don't, I don't you know, bowl all the time, maybe once or twice a year. But, uh, but we had a group there, and we were bowling, and right away, you know, at first, it's just, uh, it's just we're having fun. But as it gets moving, it goes from having fun to, uh, to wanting to win. <laughs> and, uh, and my wife beat me by one pin. Can you believe that? I let her win, but no. But, uh, but it was kind of comical. One of the teenagers who was in the lane next to me, uh, he kind of got in his mind that he was going to give me a hard time and throw me off. And so as I was bowling, uh, right when I was in the middle of, the, of, of uh, throwing the ball there, bowling, he got in my ear and he was talking some trash. And, and I'm telling you, the Lord was in it. But, but every time, every time he talked trash, I bowled a strike. He did it like three times, and, and he'd get right in there, and he'd say something like, don't mess up, Brother Judah, and, and honestly, it was God, but, but I'm going to tell you, part of me, I love that. I love, if you talk a little bit of trash, I tend to do a little bit better, and that second time when he did it, I thought, oh, yes, and it was going straight, and I bowled a strike, and I was like, yes, thank you, Lord, and uh, keep talking that trash, you know, because I'm competitive, and I like to win. And I like it when those things uh, line up that way. In the Bible, there's winners and there's losers. In life, there are winners and there's some losers. And this morning, as we examine a very familiar passage, the crucifixion of Christ, I want to bring to light some winners and some losers. We're not sure how many people were there when Jesus was crucified. Growing up, I always got the impression that there weren't many people there. I got the impression that, you know, it was on a hill far away. I got the impression that uh, on lonely Golgotha stood a cross and maybe just a handful of people was always the impression that I got that Jesus died in uh, relative obscurity and, and that uh, there weren't many people around. But as I've studied the Bible and looked into some things, uh, I've realized that that's not the case at all. I've arrived at a whole different conclusion. When Christ was crucified, Calvary was a very busy place. It was on a high day. They say that the population of Jerusalem would swell exponentially during these Sabbath days and these high days. And so we realize now that everything that they did to Jesus, everything that we read about was done very publicly. As they beat him and as they whipped him and as they placed the crown of thorns upon his head and as they spit in his face, it was all done very publicly. Many people were there. I would say thousands of people saw Christ crucified. Something very interesting in John chapter 19, uh, where we were at, if you look at verse number 19, the Bible says that Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, uh, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read, many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, written in the three most popular languages of the day. It was written for the purpose of being read, not just by those who were there, 
but maybe even by others who understood a different language, realizing that the city population would swell. Uh, they placed Christ right in the center, right outside of the city. And I believe many saw him die. Something uh, to think about in Mark 15, the Bible says that, uh, that they passed by, railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. I'm not sure how many were there, uh, but I know this, I believe the crowd was very hostile. Many of the thousands of people knew who Jesus was. He was, for lack of a better word, a celebrity. People knew him. They recognized him. They recognized his followers. The Bible says that word of his fame had spread abroad. And so now it was time uh, to see this famous person die. A celebrity who in one moment was on top of the world. Hosanna! Hosanna! King of the Jews! And now literally fighting to breathe his next breath. His once pure face is now spat upon and disfigured and bleeding profusely and thousands are there. Can you see him there? Many saw it, but can you see him there? What do you see when you see him there? Soldiers are there. We know of at least four soldiers that are there, but I believe those four soldiers uh, represented other men and soldiers that were there. The soldiers were there to make sure the execution was fulfilled according to Roman law and probably just to be a police presence in such a large crowd. That's the scene for you this morning. Our Lord beaten beyond recognition, the Bible says. Our Lord stripped of his clothing in humiliation. Our Lord struggling to breathe. Visitors from all across the region descending on Jerusalem and watching it happen. I believe that they saw him there. And I want to say this about winning and losing. Just before we get into the heart of the message, I want to say this. You cannot always judge the winners and losers by appearances. You cannot always judge who's winning and losing just by appearances and just by what's happening right now. Looks can be deceiving. To everyone who passed by, Jesus no doubt looked like he was losing. His face was swollen. His friends had forsaken him. His body was mutilated. It looked like he lost. If you were there that day, you would not look at Christ and say, he must be winning. It looked like the Roman government had won. They were standing there consenting and carrying out every painful order. It looked like perhaps the Pharisaical Jews had won. They had trailed him uh, for a couple of years trying to uh, figure out a way to trip him up in his words and trying to get him hung up in a sermon or in a speech. And now it finally looks like uh, they had won the plot that they had cooked up as they were watching Jesus crucified. It looked like the devil had won when the Lord screamed out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It probably looked like hell and the grave had won as the disciples came and as his body was taken off of the cross and, and put in a borrowed tomb. But you know, and I know, that the reason we're here today in church is because though he may have looked like he was losing in that moment, you know that three days later, the stone was rolled away and three days later, up from the grave, he arose, rose victorious, the Bible 
Bible says. I love that song. Our God is victorious. He always wins. He always wins. And you can't judge winning and losing by appearances. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you don't feel like a winner. Maybe you're sitting here right now and your finances in the moment are rough. Or your health in the moment, poor health is winning the battle. My friend, let me say something to you. Uh, You just don't quit. Uh, Hang in there. Uh, Your three days may be right around the corner and you may rise from the ashes. Uh, If God be for us, who can be against us? You can't judge winners and losers just by the appearances. I don't know if you were there that day. But I know of three men that were there. There were three men who were there, and they saw everything that took place. They heard everything that was said, and they walked away from it all. And these three men walked away either winning or losing. And as I've looked at these three men and examined it, I believe that all of us could be placed in one of the categories that these men were in. These men saw everything that took place at Calvary. They heard everything that was said. If they did not hear it, it was their own fault because certainly they were close enough to hear the words that came out of Jesus' mouth as he uttered those seven sayings of the cross. As we examine these three men, you and I fit in one of the categories. And let's look at these winners and losers at Calvary. The first man I want to look at is one of the soldiers in John 19. If you would, please, John 19, look at verse number 23 and 24. The Bible says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. And they said, Therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. The soldiers hung Jesus on the cross, and then they began to take his garments. They would take his garments, and they would divide them four ways. They got to the coat. You've heard probably sermons preached. I know that I have. I've read books about the seamless coat. They got to this coat that Jesus was wearing. The Bible makes a special note of saying in verse 23 uh, that the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. This was a special coat. This was a, probably a designer jacket. This was something that was unusual, that belonged to an unusual man. This was a piece of memorabilia that the soldiers did not want to divide up. And so they decide, we're going to gamble for the coat. And that's exactly what they did there at the foot of the cross. They knelt down, and I'm not sure how exactly uh, they gambled for the coat. Maybe they were rolling dice. Maybe I don't know what they were doing. But here's what I know. One man won. One man walked away from Calvary with that coat. He walked away from Calvary probably pretty proud of himself. He had gained something that day that nobody else gained. Something impressive. He walked away thinking that he was a winner. But the truth is, he lost when he gained that coat. While he was focused on the coat, he missed the greatest opportunity of his life. While he was gambling there at the foot of the cross. Can you imagine that? Think about this. At the foot of the cross, it might be that the very blood of Christ was pooling right there where he was gambling for that coat. 
And, and while he saw the blood of Christ, and maybe the blood of Christ even splashed on him, he wasn't focused on the Christ of the coat. He was focused on the coat. All of his attention, all of his focus was there on that coat. And he won, but he missed it. He won. I can see him as he walks into his house, proud, tells his wife, hey, look what I got. Nobody else got this. But he missed everything that Jesus said that day. He was gambling and he missed, uh, Jesus was on the cross for six hours, roughly from nine in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon. While he was suspended between heaven and earth, he had seven sayings. Uh, he said things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. Just before he died, he said, it is finished. But this soldier did not hear any of that. He was focused on the coat too busy trying to gain a little more of the world's goods, while the very blood that could save his soul was pooling right there at the base of the cross. It meant nothing to him, because he got the coat. In the other soldier's eyes, he walked away a winner. See him walk away from Calvary, gripping the coat. See him high-five the other soldiers. See him going home that night and telling his family, how he won the coat of Jesus, but he missed it. He missed it all. We're going to let this coat represent material, temporal things, the things of this earth. And just like, just like the soldier was focused on the coat, there are people today who are focused on the coat. Just like in Jesus' day, there are people who are so consumed with gaining the coat that they miss the Christ of the coat. There's a lost world living for money, living for fame, living for promotion. The next house, the next car, the next vacation, the next follower on their social media account. Never one time do they stop to consider Christ. Never one time do they stop to think about coming to church, to open the Bible, to pray a prayer. They are consumed with this world and with advancement and with gain, with money and riches, occupied with things. No time for Jesus. We live in a world like that today, and this morning, my friend, if you're here, and if you're lost, if you've never been born again, if you've lived your life trying to gain another house, another car, another promotion, hey, for a moment, take your eyes off of the coat and look at Christ. What do you see when you see him there? They're lost people consumed with the, with the coat. Surely this soldier is in hell this morning. Probably thinking to himself, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And as he falls in hell this morning, that coat means nothing to him now. And we live our life, my friends, for the coats of this world. We live our lives, all of our focus and all of our attention and all of our energy for the coats of this world when they will mean nothing in eternity. Absolutely nothing. There's a Christian world living for the coat. You're here at the foot of the cross. You come to church week after week. 
you sing the songs and hear the messages and go through the discipleship booklets, maybe you are here, you, you're here living at the foot of the cross, but you're never stirred to do anything for the Lord. You have no time for the service of God. Important matters to tend to. You as well are living for the coat. You're at the foot of the cross. But, but when was, let me ask you a question. Are you in love, as in love with Jesus today as you were the day that you got saved? Are you as right with God right now as you ever have been? If not, then you have lost focus and perhaps you have allowed the coats of this world to steal your focus. Have you taken your eyes off of Christ, focused on the coat? This is a trap that all of us can fall into. This is something that I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say there's not been a few times, but there have been many times where I should have been looking unto Jesus, where I should have been focused on Christ, and my attention was consumed with a coat. Parents, this is something you have to watch with your children. We get them focused on the coats of this world, enrolled in every extracurricular camp, every, every sport activity, and they're a part of it, and they're all about it. Instruments and music and all of it, all the extras, and we'll dish out money, and we'll devote time and energy. But what about Jesus? No time for Jesus, no time for Sunday night church, no time for teen soul winning. Hey, uh, the words of life are being spoken, but we're not hearing them because we are consumed with the coat. Are you with me? And parents, let me just say, they will love what you love. We're raising a generation that is enjoying the coat and enduring Christ. And that's a problem, my friends. That's something for you to consider. Are you consumed with things? Are you occupied with your status, so absorbed in who you are and what everyone thinks of you, that you are neglecting Jesus? If that's you, you might think that you're winning, but my friend, you are losing. You are losing. I think of David Brainerd, that great missionary, and his brother John was a very successful lawyer and a very wealthy man. At the end of John's life, they asked him, what do you want to be remembered for? You have everything, you've attained every worldly success. And John Brainerd said, I want to be remembered as David Brainerd's brother. And when asked why, he said, because my brother lived his life for the things that really mattered. My friend, are you consumed with the coat, have you taken your eyes off of Christ? It was right here on the Dan Ryan. Our teenagers have heard me tell the story many times, and maybe you have. I was with my dad. It was a weekend visit. Mom and dad had gotten divorced. My dad's a successful man, as the world counts success. We were driving in his car, leaving the city, coming into the suburbs, driving down the Dan Ryan. He had the radio playing. And I can remember... Man, I love my dad, and to me, he was just always the man and just so successful, and so, you know, he had it all. He was my hero. The radio was playing. My dad began to cry. He pulled off on the side of the road on the Dan Ryan. He was just weeping uncontrollably. When he could finally compose himself, he looked at me, and this is what he said. He said, son, don't ever lose your family. You see, that song that had been playing on the radio, that was my mom and dad's song. Something probably from the 60s, you know. 
If you want a playlist, Brother Mitchell has one. He can give it to you, but no. But uh, he had heard that song, and it had stirred some emotion. He could no longer drive. And he pulled off on the side, and he said, Son, don't ever, don't ever lose your family. What was he saying? He was saying there are some things uh, that you cannot exchange for the coat. There are some things that the coat cannot buy. The coat cannot buy the peace of God. The coat cannot buy children that will rise up and call you blessed. The coat cannot buy the salvation of your soul. And one of these days, church family, the ball is going to be dribbled for the last time. Uh, then what? One of these days, after you've gained and gained and gained, you'll hear the words of the rich man in Luke 12, 20, where it was said to him, This night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then who shall these things be? Let's not live our life for the coat, taking our eyes off of Christ. Simple song, I want my life to count for Jesus. For earthly things will quickly fade. No need to ask for worldly riches. I only seek eternal gain. And there was a soldier that day who won something. There was a soldier that day who gained this seamless coat, this piece of celebrity memorabilia. But he lost, my friend, and he's losing right now. And if you live this life for the things of this world, you will realize as well that while you thought you were winning, you were actually losing. There's a second man I want to look at. The first is the man who won the coat. There's a second man I want to look at. He's another soldier. He's found in chapter 19, verse number 31. The Bible says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers, and they break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. I've got to be honest with you, I've thought about this soldier for several days leading up to this service. I thought about this soldier who, while legs were being broken and they came to Christ, it wasn't enough that he had a crown of thorns on his head. It wasn't enough that he had been spit upon. It wasn't enough that he had been humiliated. It, it wasn't enough that he was dead. They knew he was dead. The Bible says right here in, uh, verse, number, in verse number 33 that they saw that he was dead already. They knew that he was dead, but that wasn't enough. We have a soldier who grabs a spear, and with force he thrusts that spear into the side of Christ. I was reading Barnes' commentary, and Barnes' commentary tells a little bit about this, this uh, piercing. It talks about how in order to get the blood and the water to come out, this was more than just a little uh, jab or a little poke. Christ was elevated, and this was an upward thrust. Some would say, well, Brother Judah, he did that because, because he was fulfilling prophecy. And I agree, he was fulfilling prophecy, but I don't think he knew that he was fulfilling prophecy. I don't think he was a student of the Bible. I don't think he said, you know what, before we leave, we've got to do this right, and we can't break his legs because the Bible prophesied that, but, but get me a spear, and because the Bible says, I don't think, I think there was something else that was motivating this man. 
And yes, it is hard to assign motive. And some of this is just my thoughts, but I want you to think with me. I don't know why he thrust that spear into the side of Christ. I don't know what would cause this soldier to do such an inhumane thing. For apologetics, we would need to know that Jesus was certainly dead, and that certainly accomplished that. But I, I, listen, I see something more. I see an anger. I see a soldier who decided to get one last jab in. I see him grabbing that spear and thrusting it into the side of Christ. I see the blood and the water splashing on him and splashing on the spear. This was not tradition, as some would say. This was complete and utter disrespect. Something that you wouldn't do to an animal on the side of the road. If I saw an animal on the side of the road, I, I wouldn't take a knife and just start jabbing it. I wouldn't. Yet this was done to the Lord. I believe there was something that fed his fury. He had a rage that was pent up. He singled out Jesus. I don't know why he was so bitter, but I believe that he was. He wanted revenge. He wanted to get one last word in. And so as they were walking away, he grabs a spear and he thrusts it into the side of Christ, into the side of a body that was dead, that he knew was dead. I could see a fierce look in his eyes. I could see satisfaction as he walks away, thinking he was a winner. I've seen people get mad at Jesus. I've seen people get mad at the church. I've seen people get mad at family, at each other. You can't have a family reunion. I remember one time I was uh, doing a funeral in, in West Virginia, and this particular funeral home had the, the podium and then seats on the left and seats on the right, and it became very apparent to me that everybody on the left did not get along with anybody on the right, and there was actually an argument that broke out in the middle of the, of the service. Only in West Virginia. <laughs> but uh, Hatfields and McCoys. No, but, but I, it's everywhere, not just there. Bitterness and anger. I've seen people hate the church and leave filled with rage. And they'll go to any lengths to have their say and to get their justice. I've seen spears rammed into the side of good men and good women. By people who were set on fire on the inside. Now friends, as we look at this story, we know that Jesus was not the problem. He was perfect. And could it be that there are some sitting here even right now and you're living with anger, you're living with rage and you have your reasons, but could it be that some of it is on you? Are you living for the day to get back at somebody? Living for that moment of revenge? Listen, my friend, if that's you, you are losing. And you may get in the last word. And you may, you may have your final say, but I'm going to tell you something. You may even walk away satisfied in the moment, but you will realize that you were losing. Bitterness, as you know and can quote to me, bitterness does not hurt the one in whom, or on whom it is poured. It hurts the one in whom it is stored. And all of us have reasons sitting here right now. We all have justifiable reasons to be bitter and to be angry. 
But my friend, if that's you, if you can't let it go, you need to realize this morning that you are losing Mad at God because something didn't go your way. Mad at God because your relative wasn't healed. Mad at the church or at some family member. You don't want to live that way. Forgiveness is the answer to bitterness. You need to exercise forgiveness. Forgiveness is the foundation upon which everything that we believe is built. Forgiveness. I was doing some study and thinking about if I should even bring this point up in the message, because there is speculation as to motive. But I came across a pastor, an English pastor from 250 years ago named Benjamin Grosvenor. G-R-O-S-V-E-N-O-R, for those of you who like to Google during the message. Benjamin Grosvenor. He preached a message entitled, the temper of Jesus towards his enemies. And he recreated a conversation that the risen Christ would have with his apostles as he sent them out to reach the world. And I have to read this. I cannot quote it. I have to read it. But please listen. And it's from 250 years ago, but it is powerful. In this conversation that he recreates, Jesus says to his disciples, if you meet the poor wretch, who thrust his spear into my side, tell him that there is another way, a better way of coming to my heart. Tell him if he will repent and look upon me, whom he has pierced, and I will cherish him in the very bosom that he has wounded. Tell him that he shall find the blood that he has shed to be ample atonement for his sin. And tell him from me that he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he first drew it forth. There's not a hint of bitterness in the crucifixion of Christ. My friend, it's forgiveness all the way through. And I don't know, I'll I'll, I'll be frank with you, I don't know if this soldier was mad and bitter at God. I, I do not know. I believe that he was. I believe something had happened that gave him an unusual rage and an unusual, unnatural anger and hatred. And I believe as he thrust that spear in the side of Christ, he felt a a momentary relief. And he walked away thinking he was a winner, but he lost. And if only he would have forgiven. And maybe you're here today. And deep down on the inside, there's something that you can't let go. There's something that you can't forgive. There's someone that you can't put it past you. You have justifiable reasons to be angry, justifiable reasons to be bitter. But my friend, I'm just here. Look, I just came along this morning to say to you, if that's you, you are losing. Whatever scheme you can draw up to get even, even, even if it became fulfilled. I see him walking away with the blood of Christ on the end of that spear, thinking that he was somebody probably in hell right now, realizing that he's lost for eternity. And my friends, if you're saved, you can't go to hell, but I'm going to tell you something. Bitterness and rage and anger can so consume your life that if you don't learn to let it go and if you don't learn to exercise some forgiveness, you will lose. You will lose. I've told the story. It's the story of the Southern lady who was... um, Right after the Civil War, she was, she was 
cleaning up her property that the Union soldiers had taken over, and she was there, and uh, General Lee came walking down the street. She looked at the great Southern general, and she said, General Lee, that tree... That tree, and she pointed to a tree in her yard. It was a tree where the Union soldiers had tied their horses. They took over her land so that they could continue in war. That tree, she said, that's the tree that they took from me. That's the tree that they tied their horses to. That's the tree where they took over my farm. That's the tree where they killed our brothers and sisters. She said, General Lee, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? She was hoping the great general would have some plan to uh, go to war again. She was hoping he would uh, have some plot for revenge. And he looked at her wisely and he said, ma'am, we're going to chop the tree down. We're going to chop the tree down. And there are some in the room, you've got a root of bitterness, a tree in your life. You go to bed at night thinking about what am I going to do and how am I going to fix this? My friends, forgive and chop the tree down. There's a third person. We'll look at him for just a moment. His story is in Mark chapter number 15. Mark chapter number 15, verse number 39. The Bible tells us about another soldier who saw everything that took place that day. The Bible says in verse 39, and when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This man was a sincere soldier. While the crowd walked by and wagged their heads, while the soldiers gambled at the foot of the cross for a seamless coat, while a soldier grabbed a spear and rammed it into the side of Christ. I want you to notice this man's position. The Bible says he stood over against him. He kept his eyes on Jesus. He kept his ears tuned in to everything that would be spoken. He stayed close to him and he watched and he listened to it all. And my friend, that day he went home a winner as he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That declaration may have cost him a job. It may have cost him some status among other soldiers. Was not a popular thing the day Jesus was crucified to say, that's the Son of God. He may have appeared at first to be a losing and a losing proposition, but I'm telling you, he's in heaven today and he has won. Why? Because he was close to Christ and he kept his eyes on Christ and he was listening to the words of Christ and he was sensitive enough to respond to what he was hearing Jesus say and his eyes were opened and he said, this is the son of God. So as you see him there, what do you see? Who are you? Are you at the foot of the cross, hearing every lesson and singing every song, and, but your eyes are on the coat, focused on the things of this world? Are you living in such a way where there is hatred and anger at relationships and people and maybe even at God himself? You're consumed with it. Maybe you're waiting for a moment, just that opportunity to grab that spirit and shove it. Is that, is that you? My friend, listen to me. You're losing if that's you. Forgiveness. Or are you at the foot of the cross, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
ears wide open, hearing everything that is said. The Bible says that when he uh, stood over against him, he saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this was the son of God. He saw him. He heard him cry out and give up the ghost. He was sensitive enough to respond. Who are you? If you're living for the coat, you may think you're winning, but you're losing. If you're living with anger, bitterness on the inside, you may think that you're going to win someday, but you're losing. But if you are focused on Christ, listening to the words of God, sensitive enough to respond, then my friend, no matter what the circumstance looks like right now, I promise you, you will be winning.